Presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel. Joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we uh, uh, have gone a little bit between episodes uh, for various scheduling reasons. Uh, now that we are back, the playoff is almost here and we're definitely going to talk about it. Um, but there was obviously huge news in, in the football world on Tuesday. John Madden passed away at the age of 85, just days after Fox ran this great documentary about him and you were um, had the great instinct to get a guest on today that everybody knows, Tom Rinaldi, who was one of the producers of that documentary. This is a project Tom has worked on for the for the past year. And so we had gotten a taste of it at our Fox offsite for college football and NFL uh, back in early August. And I remember just getting really excited to see what they showed us and the documentary first aired on Christmas Day, and obviously a couple of days later, um, John Madden unexpectedly passes away. And so I thought, who better to have on it to kind of to put it all into context than Tom, who obviously our audience knows well from his time, you know, immersed in college football. Now he's doing college football and everything else at Fox. But um, we appreciate Tom for joining us. To me, this is where it all starts. You see the, you know, seven-man sled. It's the greatest game in the world. Dick Stockton with John Madden. Hi, everybody. I'm Vin Scully, along with John Madden. It's Pat Summerall here with John Madden. He put all the mustard on the broth. And Antonio Freeman is used to catching those. There is the Look, big turkey. Yeah, and that, and that turkey's so big and so many legs that that's a two-man job. Yep. Look at the size of this turkey. Now, there, there is a turkey. Yo, we got some legs on there. I mean, here's a leg, here's a leg. Then we got three here, we got three here. Okay, now we have the award, and what we do is every Thanksgiving, to the outstanding player, we give the turkey leg award. I want to talk to John Madden, Pat Summerall. That's what well, I love. You, you got yeah, it. Hey, yeah. yo, what's up, top fella? Yeah. Uh, huh? You're up on top when you make hey, catches man, like that. Hey, y'all know I put on the show for y'all two old heads, yeah. man. The, the front seven, the line, and the linebackers of the 49ers just whip this Ram offense. Oh, here comes some airplane. Bill Belichick is the defensive coordinator of the Giants. And this guy is a very good coach. And they're talking about him as a possible head coach in the National Football League this year. He's only 38 years old. Very intense. The core of it was, was football. But when you can play it for a while, 
and then go on with your life's work and it's still football, you're the luckiest guy in the world. Okay, Stu, now we are pleased to be joined by our guest. Uh, He is a voice and a face. All our college football audience knows well, even though he has moved on to doing a lot of NFL stuff. And that's one of the things we want to touch on here, but it's bigger than NFL. Uh, It is Tom Rinaldi. Tom, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Bruce and Stuart, thank you so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Read you all the time, incessantly. Can't break the habit. All right. Well, we're appreciative of that. Tom, uh, one of the things I wanted to have you on, the, the main reason is back uh, before the season, we were at an offsite at Fox in Arizona, and they showed us a tease of what uh, you had been working on in this amazing doc that you had put together along with uh, our mutual friend Joel Santos at Fox that was the most comprehensive look at, at John Madden and to be able to show him. And, and as it happened... Uh, the documentary aired, and a lot of people saw it on Christmas Day. And I think people were amazed at what they saw and all the voices they heard and everything. And then uh, as our as our audience knows now, John Madden passed away as we're taping this yesterday. I think it's three days after um, the doc aired. And I, I, I'm just curious, what were the emotions like in your head knowing this work, that he got to see it, he got to see all the behind-the-scenes stuff that maybe didn't have time to run in the whole piece. What did you think when when you heard the news? Uh, We were stunned. Joel and I and everyone who was a part of producing All Madden, Bruce, we were just stunned and really heartbroken. Uh, We are really bolstered by the fact, as you referred to it, that we know, uh, I talked to Mike, his son, uh, the day before John suddenly passed. And had a great conversation with him, 45 minutes, and I asked him to describe what John's experience was watching it. John was in his den at his home in Pleasanton. Uh, He had a lot of family around him, and they asked him, just lock in as best you can here for this hour and a half. And he did that. Um, And when it was over, John pulled the room. What did you think? Or what did you think? Or what was your favorite moment? Or what did you like? And then Mike, who was so anxious, was like, Dad, enough. What did you think? And he said he loved it. And I can't tell you how much that means to Joel and me, to Shanks and to Richie Zions, who were really the two catalysts that made this come to life. We're so grateful John had the opportunity, surrounded by his family, to see this and to hear how people felt about him what were the so in the documentary obviously you talked to a lot of you know a lot of different people on camera but you did get time with john what were those i mean first of all how much time and and over how much you know different maybe sittings you did that and what were those conversations like well we had a series of visits with him Stuart, from the beginning where john was more than willing to cooperate but not necessarily to participate, a pretty big difference. And remember, John had left, largely left the public stage after being ubiquitous for three decades. And as a result, when you're that much of a fixture, you're also fixed in people's minds. You're not necessarily permitted or allowed to age. And because a decade or more had passed since anyone had seen John at length, Uh, certainly on a larger uh, stage, 
he we there was a, a lot of conversation that went into whether in fact john would be comfortable enough to do this but once we presented him Stu, with the idea that we really, really want to hear from you. And we're going to touch on these different parts of your life. And we're going to show you a series of clips from others talking about you, as well as you watching some scenes from your own life. I think that was a key turning point. And the very first thing we showed, John, is the first thing you see, his own retirement press conference. I'd, I'd be curious, do you guys have any memory of that at all? the film of how John looked and sounded as he retired at such a young age from the Raiders. Did that, do you guys have any memory of that? I'll, I'll be honest, Tom. First of all, by the way, this pains me to say this. I'm actually, I found out a little older than you by a couple of months. So it, it annoys me because you're not supposed to admire people who are younger than you. <laughs> um, but I, I'll be honest. I do not remember any of that because, and I'm obviously older than Stu just the timing of it, I, I certainly remember him as a broadcaster, and I've watched a ton of NFL films on that. But just some of the things of him being basically, yeah, obviously he doesn't look like Sean McVay, but the Sean McVay, you know, we think in, in Cliff Kingsbury, all these guys were so, so young when they got to be a head coach that he had this career. And one of the favorite things I had on the job once, I spent a whole day with Matt Millen when I barely knew him. You know, he was a broadcaster for, I think, ESPN or ABC at the time. And he, we sat there, we watched film. He was like, I got to watch film with him watching film, basically. And he told Raider stories. And it just blew my mind, right? And, and, and Matt is is prominent in, in the documentary. And I just... You know, so many things kind of come out because for, you know, and this is well done in the in the in the film is so many people know him as the video game guy. My son is seven. He, you know, he knows Madden. He doesn't know there's a human being behind it. Right. And for a lot of us, I just think, you know, him as the broadcaster aspect of it. And so to see that switch and I thought it was very well done in the piece where Virginia, his wife is talking about you know the toll it took on his family and to think about the discipline it took for him to go i'm done and i'm really done right and i thought the gap between the time when that press conference happens and i think you guys showed some i don't want to say some like rougher clips of him transitioning to become the john madden the broadcaster but i think that was kind of fascinating to know that it was that kind of a meandering a little bit of a, you know, like the emotional, you know, uh, adrenaline dump that must have been for him and his family. I also think, you know, there's there's a shot. Uh, I don't know if you can picture it in your minds. It's one of our favorite shots. Joel and I and Joe Nargi, the incredible editor who was the heart and center of this project of John alone in the locker room. I don't know if you can conjure that right now in your mind's eye after a loss by television standards. As you guys know, the shot is eternal. It's a slow pan, which finds John all alone in the locker room at the Coliseum, just sitting there, and he doesn't move. The corrosive feeling of defeat and how that ate him alive from the inside, despite his incredible success. 
And our design in doing the documentary was always to be a tribute to John's different sides. And that's why we knew, Joel and I, from the very beginning, that we would conclude his coaching career by the end of our first segment. And we did. But we were so struck by seeing John watch how he looked and sounded. And he does not look and sound like the man who just blossomed so spectacularly in the booth. He could certainly be that way as a coach with his personality on display, but the defeats were so difficult for him. I think, you know, Bruce made a good point that it's almost like he had, he had three legendary careers in one. Uh, and, and I'm not old enough to, to remember him as a coach, but certainly as I was as a kid becoming an NFL fan, he was ubiquitous. In fact, I, my first memories, honestly, are the Miller Light commercials. <laughs> they were on, you know, every commercial break of any NFL game. And that's when you first started to get a sense, okay, this guy's bigger than just, you know, your typical uh, broadcaster. And, of course, Madden, I think, came about as I was a teenager or getting into college, and, and it was just the coolest thing ever. So, you know, most people would be fortunate to have one of those careers. You, you use the word... Um, you know, I read an interview you did about this and you used how he was beloved. As you know, in broadcasting these days, and maybe it's always been the case, it's hard to find anybody who the public, you you know, is universal about, right? You you name the, whether it's Kirk Herbstreet or Joe Buck or whoever, like, some people love when he's on the game, some people hate it. I mean, am I romanticizing or I remember that everybody loved John Madden? I think you're spot on, Stuart. And I don't know that I, I think the deeper we dove into the project, the more certain that became the cement around how beloved he was hardened. There were no aberrations. There was no random voice of complaint or disdain or uh, none. We made 38 requests. And you know, for those who've seen the documentary, the roster is really impressive. 38 requests. We got 38 yeses. There was not a single person who we asked to be uh, for their time to, to make a hole in their schedule, to find some allowance to talk about John Madden, who couldn't or wouldn't do it. Every single person did. That tells you maybe all you need to know. The, um, the, the, the first voice that I think I remember in the piece is Lawrence Taylor, and it's yes. the it's the aspect, oh, it's John Madden, I'm going to do that. And he kind of, yeah, obviously, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but it's it's a really neat way to start the piece. I'm curious as to, you know, as to how you look at, at the roster of names we want to try to get for this. Who are the people, if you don't mind sharing, you're like, Oof, I don't know if we're going to be able to get this person. I mean, we, we thought that many times, starting with LT. He does, as you guys know, he does very, very little LT. And he acknowledges that. Like you say, you'll see that in the first one minute of the documentary. He fully acknowledges that. And why he responded to John, that bookends the documentary in a sense. You, you know what, though, Bruce, especially now with John's passing, for all of the star power that we had, and we're so grateful, Joel and I, to everyone who participated in it, we're most grateful for Virginia, Mike, and Joe. Because they give John his most human dimension in the portrait that we tried uh, to draw. And, and listen, again, there, there are deeper dives, I'm sure, and there will be on certain aspects of John. But the fact to go back to what Stewart said, 
or what you've said, Bruce, and what I've heard so many people tell me, the people that don't know, that only know him as a brand to a video game, or the people that only know him as the broadcaster that just don't know all these different things. A guy that did the Super Bowl, got on a train, hosted Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy. A guy that had an apartment in the Dakota in New York City and was close friends with John and, and Yoko and their kids. I mean, a, a, you could go on and on about the stories about him. A guy who was, and this is so beautiful about him, just incorrigibly curious. He wanted to know, which is why the, the cruiser worked so well for him, guys. He's somebody who actually had a, an encyclopedia of wildflowers in the bus. Why? So that if he saw a field of flowers and he asked Willie Yarbrough or one of his other drivers to pull over, he could walk out, identify the flowers, and know more about them. The guy that literally stopped to smell the flowers, John Madden. So Bruce touched on it off the top, but what, you know, I think it's been less than 24 hours as we're recording this since, since we found out that he passed away, you know, you, you were immersed in this for, in, in John and his life for a year. What is this, you know, you, you've, I'm sure you've been reading the various tributes people are writing. Like what, what has this been like for you to see, you know, to kind of see what, what everybody else's, you know, memories of him are and thoughts are, you know, as he, um, you know, uh, as basically the whole football world is toasting him right now. Again, I'll, I'll let go of something I said a little bit earlier, Stu, and that's so often, and I know this can sound like a trope, but it's true. So often, this only happens once somebody is gone. And the remarkable notion that, again, through Eric Shanks and through Richie's Zions, that wanted this done while John was 85 without any clearly impending health hazard to him, just wanting to do it. Now, let's not wait. And I think this sentiment has hopefully grabbed people a bit, not just for John, but he'd be thrilled that beyond his own stake and his own legacy, that celebrating somebody, particularly somebody who's older and who may not be as much in the public eye as they once were, is so worth it before that person is gone to give the person the flowers while he can still hold them. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the timing is, is remarkable. I don't know if it's eerie. I don't know if it's cathartic. I don't, you know, I don't know how to, to, to phrase it appropriately. Just the fact that three days later, um, you know, there's that expression. A lot of times people will say, I felt like I was looking down at my own funeral. And in this case, you have an iconic figure who, as you you know, is the beloved, to be able to hear it, and not just hear it from, but to hear it from probably every aspect of like people behind the scenes, in front of the scene, people he worked, you know, just like, it was just very moving, very sweet. Uh, for people who haven't seen it, Tom, I'm going to ask you, when exactly is it appearing this weekend? I know it's, I think uh, Big Fox is going to have it on again this weekend. So we're so grateful for the spirit of collegiality that the networks have shown in honoring John. And this was a, an agreement that was reached prior to John's passing, but has now been fast-tracked. So starting today, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 29th. This will be available on ESPN+. Plus. It will be available on Peacock, and it will be available on Fox's streaming service, Tubi, um, Linear, 
It will be on FS1 a number of times, but on FBC main Fox, it's on Thursday night in prime time uh, on the 30th at eight o'clock Eastern and Pacific. And again, we're grateful that people, if they're interested in John, if they're interested in just looking at a life which had such incredible reach to it, and maybe what it is to be beloved at a time, guys, right? In the, and I know I'm going to sound saccharine-like, and I get, uh, I get this all the time, but at a time where things are so divisive, it's wonderful to have a story which seems to strike a pretty universal chord, as Stu said you know, universal in how people feel about the great John Madden. All right, Tom, we appreciate your time. I know you are swamped. Um, I'm sure our fans are so like, we're not going to see Tom in the playoff. Um, (laughs) We'll have to wait for him for the NFL. In the NFL playoffs. Yeah, NFL playoffs. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be weird to watch a college football playoff game with Nick Saban and you're not the one interviewing him on the field before the game. But, but, you know. Everybody, Stu, everybody, in particular Nick, he'll be just fine. <laughs> he'll be just fine. All right. Well, Tom, we uh, we really appreciate you working us in. It was an awesome piece. It lived up to the feeling, you, you know, like just being in the room when they showed us that, I don't know, it was two minutes or whatever. And when, when John sits down in the chair and you can see him looking at it, um, you kind of, I mean, geez, I'm getting goosebumps now. You know, like, and so... I'm, I'm, very... I'm, so, I'm so grateful to you, Bruce, that you you mentioned that, Stu. This is this 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 offsite we have where it's interesting. It's an enormous square where everyone sits in an enormous square, and there are screens positioned where you can easily see them, regardless of where you're seated. And you know this when you work on something and your head's down, you really don't have much idea how it will land at the very first time you peek the door open. And you let people have a glance in. And we were shocked, Bruce, Joel, and I. Like, people were really, they were really into it. And we didn't show much at that time. You know, we were in the infant stages of beginning to shape it. But um, we just knew that, and again, it's so Fox, you know, he's the cornerstone of Fox. And I think that comes across in the documentary, hopefully in the appropriate way and with the right measure. But Fox Sports doesn't exist without him. Yeah, the old line was it was Fox Sport, right? Because it was just a, it was just NFL. That was the old line, I guess. So. Exactly, exactly. Thank you, guys, and happy New Year! To happy you. New Year, happy Tom. New Thank Year, you. Tom. I, I will be I will be envious of uh, of where you guys will be. I miss it terribly. I love I'm, I'm I love Sundays, and I'm learning my way. But man, I miss Saturdays a ton. I do. I do. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, All right. guys. All right. Thanks, Appreciate Tom. you doing that. Thank you. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, Bruce, thanks so much for getting Tom on short notice. That's obviously, you know, um, uh, John is on the top of everybody's minds right now. In the college football world, it's been um, kind of a bizarre bowl season so far with teams having to cancel. In a, in a couple cases, um, we've got replacement teams. Rutgers thought their season was over. Now they're playing in the Gator Bowl. Uh, Central Michigan moved from the Arizona Bowl to the Sun Bowl. Um, and you had your own taste of this. Tell us. What happened with the Holiday Bowl? Yeah, it's crazy. It was a kind of a whirlwind 30, 30, uh, 42 hours for me or whatever it was. I found out on Sunday morning that I was getting put on the game, and I drove down first thing Monday morning. And so we had meetings. The game was supposed to be at, at 5 Pacific time on Tuesday. And we had meetings with first the UCLA staff early Tuesday or early Monday afternoon, Um and at that point, we knew that one particular position group was was uh, decimated, as they explained to us. And at the time, UCLA was down to two interior defensive linemen and were so, so depleted that the only backup nose guard option was a 235-pound converted linebacker who was actually in the transfer portal. So, you know, it, it was dicey, but as Chip Kelly told us, he was like, as long as we can have we can field eleven guys, we're gonna we're gonna play. And you know, you talk to other guys on their staff. We met with a couple of their players, and then we talked to uh, the NC State staff later in the afternoon. And I think the one thing you kind of worried about was if they have more positive cases tomorrow, being during the day of the game. So we have our production meeting uh, over breakfast at 9 a.m. And then I'm on a treadmill in the gym. I'm supposed to go to the stadium at 2. And at, I don't know, maybe 11.50, um, close to around, but somewhere between like 11.50 and noon, I get a text from somebody who's like, I hear they're going to cancel the game. And I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I don't I, I don't think that's happening because as of last night, it was still on unless UCLA had a bunch more positive cases. And then uh, I, I, at this point, I called uh, our producer and he hadn't heard of anything. And I was kind of, you know, said, I'll keep you posted and same. And then a couple minutes passed and that other person got back to me and said, 
it's canceled. And then I reached out to, a, you know, I was reaching out to a couple of other uh, sources at UCLA. And I guess it was like maybe 12.05, I got a text back that the game is off. And then there was a, you know, there was a, you know, at that point you're just calling everybody you need to call on the TV side and then finding out. And so what we found out subsequently was UCLA had a bunch more positives where I think it was either six or seven um, uh, cases where guys were symptomatic. And I think that, um, from my understanding, I think they were down to one defensive lineman able to play. And I think that one lineman has played in a grand total of like a two games in the last two years. So the idea that this one guy was going to be able to play 75 snaps. I mean, you're talking about health reasons for health issues for a different reason then. Um, right. And so then it, it kind of, it went from there, you know, obviously the NC state, I get why they were really upset about it. You know, they had flown across the yeah, country. Dave Doran basically said he thought he accused Chip Kelly of, uh, and UCLA of hiding the, hiding from them if they had any issues at all. I don't, on that part, I don't know how that is supposed to work because, you know, we're in the production meetings. We know stuff about injuries. You know stuff about that probably isn't, you know, you're not going to be able to report on until right before kickoff. So I don't know how that works where it's like, okay, you know, you're not going to talk about this guy, this star player who's who's not going to play in the game, but you're going to say, hey, this other team has one particular group at a position where their numbers are really thin, you know, like, because at that point, like everything we were told and we're the, you know, we're the broadcast, you know, unit of the game, um, as of late Monday night into Tuesday morning, the game was on. Right. And so even if they, even if it, even if somebody, you know, let's say the Martin Jarman, the AD from, from UCLA had told Boo Corrigan, the AD from NC state, Hey, by the way, we have, one position group that is really depleted and you know if there's more if we have a bunch more cases we're gonna have to we're not gonna be able to play the game like i don't know what that changes because you're not gonna fly a team in like no one's gonna come to san diego on a day's notice to play a game like it just It'd be different if this was maybe on like Friday or Thursday of last week, but that wasn't the case. Like, in fact, like I look back at my notes, like one of the guys who we were told was like, you know, it was all good to play. And then all of a sudden, I guess that that particular player woke up feeling pretty sick and then got tested and then was out, you know, and it just was one of those new positives. So I, I don't know how, you know, like how it's supposed to work on that part of it. Now, if you'd say, Hey, are we just treat them all as they have, you know, they tech like, like they have the flu and are they, you know, you know, we're not hearing players are ruled out officially, like because they have the flu, whereas you're ruled out if you tested positive for COVID. I don't, you know, I, I think this is all a very fluid situation and how, People are looking at it now through a much different prism than we did certainly a year ago, but even even three months ago. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's been bad timing, frankly, for the bowl games because Omicron hit right as the regular season was ending, maybe shortly after. Uh, I know I remember talking to somebody in the bowl industry the day that the pairings got announced 
And it was just, you know, he was just so relieved that he, he, he at that moment, thought he wasn't going to have to deal with this this year like he did last year. Um, so now I wanted to, you mentioned I want to clear something up here or help clear something up. People are obviously very frustrated that this is happening again. And I think there's this notion that, you know, last season pre-vaccines, you know, you would, whole teams were getting tested every day or almost every day. And then guys would get, you'd have some positives, then you'd have to contact trace and whatnot. That's not what's happening. If a guy is, my understanding, I can't say this is true for every single team that's had to pull out. But the, what you're talking about there is like guys are actually sick. And so they test positive and they can't play. And whether that should still be the policy is is for smarter people than us. But that is that, it, you know, as of this moment, if you test positive for COVID, it's, you know, you're going to have to go isolate. Even the CDC has shortened that from 10 days to five days. But, it, you know, if you test positive the morning of the game, you're not going to play. So that's what happened here, right? Like this wasn't they tested a bunch of asymptomatic vaccinated people. This was guys actually got sick with COVID. No, to my understanding, it was guys who had had symptoms. Like they have, they, you know, I won't say who the player was, but they had one particular player like two weeks ago who was pretty sick, but did not have COVID, right? It was some, something else. Uh, that player was, a, you know, would, if it happened now, I think would be able to play if they were able to play. Um, but in the case of this, there were guys who had symptoms and that's why they were testing them. Now, I don't know, you know, like how different it is at, you know, each school seems to be handling it very differently. Are they only testing unvaccinated players? Um, in the case of that, I've heard some of that. Um, but I think it's very different. I also think, you know, what I noticed, especially in the time from the time I I left San Diego to come back to Los Angeles was there was a there was a bunch of stuff that was like either reported or speculated on that was not accurate. Like one of the things was that uh, that UCLA took a player's vote and the players decided that they weren't going to play. That is absolutely not true. When I talked to sources at UCLA, they were like, no, you're not going to make a medical health decision and and do it on a player's vote those are the those are the team doctors and the ad were were directly involved in that um the other thing was was like it is just there was just a, a bunch of stuff that i think took on a life of its own i get it. nc state folks especially the sea world t- conspiracy theory i'm sorry right? what's this the, what did you did you get to, i don't know you might have been driving back at the time but you know there's a video uh, on twitter from a few days ago of ucla going to sea world because you know, at these bowl games, that's what you. There's events, right? But, but, I, go to but don't both teams like? Yes, both teams went to SeaWorld, but people latched onto the UCLA video. You know, guys didn't have their masks on, and oh, you know, look what you know, blaming UCLA. You you caused this. You went to SeaWorld. It, um, at the end of the day, first of all, SeaWorld is outdoors, so I don't. I'm not sure that's and somehow that you know only one position group was affected by that trip to SeaWorld. All right. We're getting rid of that conspiracy theory right now. At the end of the day, look, it's it just it's just bad luck. We we made it through the whole regular season with only one game getting canceled the entire season, and it was Cal, and that was in part because the city of Berkeley uh is much stricter and, and made you know a couple positives. They made the whole team test. Uh, my guess is there were guys uh who had COVID and didn't know it playing all season long. And, and, but COVID wasn't as prevalent as this. And this, this variant is just highly contagious. And I've, I've never known more people that have COVID than I do right now. Um, fortunately it's mild, but, um, 
Now, so people are saying, okay, well, now the playoff games are going to be in trouble. It's inevitable, like, one of the playoff teams isn't going to be able to play, or one of the year six teams is going to play. And this is why I want to bring up another. I don't think that's going to happen, and here's why. In a lot of cases, maybe this was true with UCLA, their numbers were down already. Like, Texas A&M's numbers were bad already, just from opt-outs and transfer portal and injuries, so that a few positive tests put you over the edge. The four teams playing in the playoff have not had opt-outs, transfer portals, so they're in pretty good shape even if a couple guys to do test positive last minute. Right, and I think some of those are, are key distinctions to make, right? So uh, hopefully hopefully this will, I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was another bowl cancellation. Between. I bet there's another bowl cancellation between the time we record this and it goes out. I, I hope not. I hope I don't not. think just, it'll be the playoff. Just as look, I mean, just as somebody who was like really excited, like I, I definitely don't want to make this about me, but just as somebody who was like really excited to get to to get to to do that game, and then I remember thinking from the time from the time that happened, and all of a sudden, you know, like you're breaking. I ended up breaking the news to like somebody saw my tweet on the NC State staff and called me. I was like, "Is this true?" I was like, "Yeah," and they were like, "We were just about to go through." A walkthrough in our in our hotel and then i'm leaving my hotel and i'm in the lobby with like i don't know if it was a mom of a cheerleader or, or like it was like two ucla uh people and you know they were crushed you go in the lobby all these people are just you know it was a trip they all took i'm sure you know it's not like for you know, it's one thing if you drove down from Los Angeles, but it's another thing if you got on a plane to do it and everything and paid hotel. I'd like to be Memphis. They flew to Hawaii and didn't get to play the game. Well, you know, at least I got to go to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, everybody's saying that, but you don't, it's not a vacation. You know, they, they probably spent a bunk, bunch of that time practicing. Oh, I'm sure they, yeah, I'm sure they did. I No, I agree. But I, I just think it's like there were so many people who are just, you know, so disappointed by this. And... um you know, it's just, I, I hope this isn't going to be the case um, for the rest of the, the bowl season. And I don't know. I mean, it's just, it sucks. It sucks. We lost, so we lost the Fenway Bowl. We lost the Hawaii Bowl. The we lost the bowl. Military Bowl. Um, probably a couple I'm forgetting. Uh, but, you know, of the games that have been played, one thing that does stand out to me, and by the way, I, I was... The Holiday Bowl, not even before you got involved, was the one I was really looking forward to as kind of the first, you know, quote unquote major bowl. Um, you know, all we got left with last night was the uh, very ugly eighteen to six uh, guaranteed rate bowl. Hey, um, but um, hey, shout out to Sonny Dykes. He, Sonny Dykes. Screw that. Shout out to Sonny, Sonny Cumbie. Shout out to he's Sonny. one of the ones whose game got. Oh canceled. my god, to Sonny Cumbie. Um, he got te- his alma mater, Texas Tech, bowl eligible on a, like a 64-yard field goal or whatever that kid nailed at a game winner a, a month ago. And then gets to coach against his mentor, Mike Leach, an SEC school, Mississippi State. We'll get into more on that in a minute. And they just blew them off the field. You know, just absolutely dominated. I mean, Sonny is moving on to become the head coach at Louisiana Tech, but... Um, you know, that was that bowl game was interesting to me for a lot of reasons. And, you know, Leach went off at one point in the press conference. I saw, you know, where it's like, hey, I loved my time in Lubbock, loved the people there, and then went down the road, the four bad apples, and then he, he really got into it. Um, 
you know, so I think there was a there was just a lot of subplots in that game, but you know that was a game I I pretty much watched start to finish, and you know you're sitting here thinking at some point it dawned on me, man, the SEC is about to go zero and four. It just means more is just taking it on the chin. Um, so you know, and like our editors asked, you know, what do you make of this kind of thing? I would ask you. Obviously, if Alabama and Georgia win on Friday in the big games, you know, whatever happens in the rest is kind of feels irrelevant. I mean, do you think that's true? It's just they they could go two and nine as long as they get to the the title well, game. That's all that matters. They would definitely get a lot of heat if they went two and nine. And, you know, I think what stands out about this 0-4 start is that, you know, so Houston's a very good team. I, I frankly expected them to beat Auburn. That's I don't know if there was a... You know, a shame in six and six Auburn losing to eleven and two Houston, but you know you're talking about Missouri lost to Army, Florida lost to UCF, uh, like you said, Texas Tech. You know, a team that had to fire its coach midseason that was six and six blew out a Mississippi State team that was a factor in the SEC this year. So, you know, there there these aren't the only one of those games, by the way, Stu, where it went to went to chalk was actually the army game army was the favorite the other ones were yeah. all and some of a couple of them were like sizable favorites right florida beat oh texas uh florida ucf was another game in there yeah texas i mean uh, mississippi state was a big favorite in that game but look yes i mean people can have their fun with that and they should but we could still end up with a all sec national championship game um that's the part I know it's you know it's the running joke, right? The SEC is still undefeated in bowl games they actually care about. Uh, I don't know that that's exactly what happened here, but you know the conference's um, legacy of this season will be judged in large part by how those two teams do in the playoff. Um, you know they've also got Ole Miss obviously playing Baylor in the uh, Sugar Bowl. I don't think people pay as much attention to whether or not they won the Gasparilla Bowl. Uh, did you know, and you probably did, but like within like the last, I think five years, the SEC's had losing seasons in bowl play a couple times. Yeah, I remember in 2014, the year that uh, I remember this because the they when the first it was the very first year of the playoff, and when the fir- very first playoff rankings came out, they had three of the top four teams and four of the top six, and they ended up having a losing record in the bowls that year, and they took a lot of heat for it, um, and and understandably so, but. Um, you know, the Georgia Michigan game, frankly, is a, is going to be seen probably as a referendum on those, those conferences because Michigan was the big 10 champ. Georgia got blown out in the SEC championship game. What does it say if Georgia still wins that game or certainly wins it handily? I don't really get too caught up, frankly, in the year to year. The SEC is the best conference. They're still going to put the most players in the NFL. They're still going to sign the best recruits. They're still going to you know, even if, if, if somebody else does win the national championship this year, they've still dominated that event uh, over the last 15 years or so. So whether the SEC goes, uh, how many do they have teams? 11, 12? Uh, yeah. So he, A&M dropped out. So, so the, so the SEC, this is their, their record. I didn't realize this, but like 2016 losing record, 2017 losing record, 2018, six and six, 2019, eight and two. I think, uh, but how many? They have twelve teams playing this year, I believe. There was going to be thirteen. So if they go four and eight in their bowl games, well, it would be more be... than that because if 
Alabama and Georgia, you would get two bowl games in there. Two. If one of them wins, yeah, yeah. that's my point. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's just I don't know four and eight or five and eleven, whatever it ends up being. Um, five and eleven is not possible. Five and ten, five and nine. Um, it's not really going to change my opinion of the SEC one way or the other. Um, you know, I think if they were, you know, the fact is they still usually win the big games. The Pac-12 hasn't won those big games for the most part, and so they get the crap for it. Um, the Big Ten used to, I mean, I gosh, I can remember calling Jim Delaney after yet another New Year's Day where they went 1-4 and four or 0-5. Oh and, um, and the other thing is it, the bowl selections are so random, right? Like the New Year's Six is more best on best, but, I mean, the it's not like there's some automatic qualification rule for the Birmingham Bowl. It's completely random why Houston was in that game and not SMU or East Carolina or whatnot. So, and maybe Auburn beats one of those other teams. So have fun with it, but I wouldn't read too much into it. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I would read into what happens in these semifinal games. They're now only two days away as we record this. John Hayes, our producer, is, is, you know, we talked about this offline, how every year it seems like because of the calendar of the sport, you don't get the build-up to those games the way you do in other sports. It's because everybody kind of goes into a break for the holidays, and you're watching these lower-tier bowls, and the next thing you know, all the playoffs are here. Um, and also, we're getting less, I would say, insight into these from the, you know, because of COVID, they shut down all the media access. So you're not going to be reading stories from media day when the whole team's available and whatnot. You're, you're basically just getting, if you turn on ESPN, there's their, you know, Chris Budden or Molly McGrath is in the hotel lobby interviewing uh, Nick Saban. That, that's about the extent of the buildup here. Anyway, the games themselves. Let's start with Michigan, Georgia. Who you got? Uh, you know, I was, the more I've thought about this, the more I've kind of talked myself into possibly Michigan. Um, just because I think they're, they just seem to, uh, playing with so much more confidence now, I'm going to, I'm going to lean that way. I'm going to stay on Michigan. All right. Uh, I could see it either way. Um, I do think you, you said talk yourself into. I think that is something we often do in these games. We talk ourselves, specifically talk ourselves into, talk ourselves into somebody beating the SEC team. The SEC teams are seven and one in these semifinals. Um, this tends to be, um, you know, there are certainly lots and lots of upsets during the season where the less talented team wins. Generally in the playoff 
since it's existed, the more talented team wins. And Georgia is the more talented team. Uh, they have stacked top two class over top two class over top two class. Uh, they're going to, you know, not that Michigan isn't going to, I mean, Michigan could have the number one pick in the draft this year. They've got talent. They're just not quite as deep and loaded with talent as Georgia is. If Michigan does win this game, it's going to tell, if I had to guess right now, if you tell me, hey, Michigan won the game, I'm going to guess, unfortunately for Georgia, that their quarterback didn't play very well. Because I feel like they're pretty set at almost every other spot on the field, but there are still questions whether Stetson Bennett can win a game of this magnitude. And he's going to be under, he could be under a lot of pressure uh, from, you know, the, the the Heisman runner-up and some other really good pass rushers. Yeah, I'm, I'll be curious as to what, what George Pickens being fully healthy now, what kind of impact that makes on the Georgia offense. Does... I don't want to say they were one-dimensional before because that's not fair. They're definitely not. But I just think he can give them a different dimension. Um, like, I, I'm excited about both these games. I'm really excited about the, the other game as well. But um, I don't know. The only thing that would surprise me is if the George, with the Georgia-Michigan game is if it's a blowout. And we've had a lot of blowouts in the playoff games. But this feels like this doesn't feel like one of those matches. Are you so? So you? What would you say your percent on Georgia's sixty five percent chance they win? I go sixty. Okay, sixty forty. I would say I am fifty five forty five Michigan. Yeah, look, the SEC championship game changed everything in terms. I mean, before that, I I thought Georgia would cruise to the championship game, and then to lose in the way they did, uh, I want you know it. it it didn't feel it, it. It. What am I trying to say here? If they had lost by a field goal to Alabama, okay. But the way they lost felt like something. Something's amiss here. Something got exposed. Fair enough. Um, let's get into the other game. To me, I'm really fascinated by Cincinnati against Alabama, and I'm fascinated by them. I would say for like three big reasons. First. I don't think people realize how athletic Cincinnati actually is. I mean, they have some freaky athletes all over the field, one. Two, I think that they are they are really physically and mentally tough. I think that's what Fickle has really developed there over time. And then three, and to me, I, I would not uh, like underestimate this point at all, is they played with Georgia and went toe-to-toe with them last year in the Sugar Bowl. They will not be intimidated at all by Alabama. And I feel like there are times when teams have played Alabama, not certainly not another SEC team, but there's a little bit of a, you know, it felt like when Notre Dame plays them, I just feel like there's something there that like they have not been able to get close to them. Whereas I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like Cincinnati will go in there totally confident they're going to win the game. I think that's true. In fact, that's what Marcus Freeman said when he was on this uh, uh, podcast a couple weeks ago about Cincinnati. They're not going to be intimidated at all. Um, the interesting thing about Alabama is I, they weren't necessarily the same team from one week to the next this season, and no, no more so than between the Iron Bowl, where they could barely score, and the uh, SEC Championship game, where they absolutely lit up this previously dominant Georgia defense. So it's hard to say what version of Alabama you're going to get in this game, especially, I do think we've talked about it before, the John Mechie loss is not insignificant. Um, Again, I hate to sound like a recruiting guy, but 
Alabama is, as a whole, considerably more talented than Cincinnati. Cincinnati has high-end guys that could certainly start and play key roles for Alabama. I don't want to make it seem like it's a 1-versus-16 NCAA tournament game by any means. But if you look at Alabama's history in these semifinals, like, do we think this since this Cincinnati team, which I fully believe is the best uh, group of five team uh, that has, you know, during this this era, not going back, not necessarily going all the way back to Boise, but in the CFP era, uh, do we necessarily think they're that much better than the 2016 Washington team that Alabama handled pretty pretty easily, or the 2015 Michigan State team, or even the 2018 Oklahoma team with Kyler Murray? It's just, it's in these situations where, where you really see the talent gap between Alabama and, and whoever they're playing, who's the uh, four seed. I don't know. I honestly don't. You know, I think a lot is also going to, like, Desmond Ritter is talented. Desmond Ritter is going to have to play like a first-round draft pick, right? Yes. You know, when we saw Oklahoma almost beat Georgia in the Rose Bowl, Baker was out there, and Baker was arguably the best player in college football then, and he looked like it. Um, I, I think that's what we're, we need to see from, from Desmond Ritter. Uh, like, I don't... I think this is a obviously this is a really good Alabama. Do you think that's possible? So you're saying Desmond Ritter has to play like Baker Mayfield? And no, the, I'm not saying that. I that think he, I, I'm not saying he needs to play like the first pick in the draft. I'm saying he needs to play like a first round quarterback. Meaning, yeah. when there are opportunities, he needs to hit them. I mean, Alec Pierce is as athletic as any receiver who will be in the game, including Jamison Williams. They have. You know, their running back played at Alabama. He is plenty talented. He is dynamic. They, you know, but they need to hit enough big plays because you're not going to beat them. You know, as athletic as the secondary is at Cincinnati, we know both corners are big time and they have really good edge rushers, but they're not going to win a 10 to 9 game. You know, they have to be able to, they can't afford to miss opportunities when they get them. And I think that's where it comes back to, you know, Desmond Ritter. I'm not saying he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to be Lamar Jackson. He doesn't need to be Joe Burrow, but he needs to be sharp in this game because I think, you know, if you look back at at what what they've done, you know, it's like they didn't. I think this is a game where he really, really needs to be. Um, you know, it's, it's it's easy. You know, it's going to sound very cliche, but he needs to be better than he's been in any big game before. You know, it just, I mean, to me, like you're talking about a guy who's played a ton of college football, right? And this is the big stage. Um, he was really sharp against against Georgia last year. No picks. Um, he completed like 66 percent of his passes. He didn't have any big runs, but I think he needs to, you know, he cannot afford to have any mistakes in this game or many mistakes in this game. There were definitely some quarterbacks this year, including most notably Zach Calzada, who gave Alabama secondary problems. So the the path is there. The precedent is there if, if Desmond Ritter can play that great game. But like I said, um, I just think the talent gap is too much. Uh more so than the talent. You really think the talent gap is that big between these two teams? Yes. Alabama has recruits recruits number one, number two, number three classes every single year. Cincinnati makes the best out of a, you know, 30, 35, 40 class. This is, I'll tell you what, this, this game, if nothing else, it for, you know, if you're, if you're the, 
you know, I, I clearly, I'm not quite as extreme as Ari Wasserman in the Stars Matter thing, but I'm definitely in his camp. And if you're in the camp of recruiting rankings are meaningless, they don't, they're never right. Uh, well, I think there's a middle what? ground on if that. If Cincinnati beats Alabama, that's, you're going to be, that's going to be a big win for that crowd. I, I don't think it's, it's as one or the other, to be honest. I really think it's, um, you know, this is like, if you re-ranked where like the talent that Cincinnati had and you had real personnel evaluators look at it, they would not be, these guys would not be thirties and forties and fifties. You know, I think, well, they have again, like they have a lot of high end talent. They have, I mean, Amar sauce Gardner is going to be, you know, possibly the first cornerback taken in the draft. You know, you've got some guys like that. You don't necessarily have them one to 22 or one to 44 the way Alabama does. No, but I think you have a lot. They're like top 10 players, I think, would be would would start at almost every school. Like, I think I think those guys are that good. I, I agree. I agree. Um, also, we haven't even mentioned his name, but Alabama has Bryce Young, the best, you know, who was just named the best player in college football this season. So um, expecting a lot out of him. All right, guys. Um well, enjoy the playoff games and the New Year's Day games. We are going to come back with our reaction episode um, after probably either the night of New Year's Day or the next morning. Um, once we get through those New Year's Day, Rose Bowl, Sugar Bowl, uh, we'll look back at the at the playoff games and the and the rest of the New Year's Six games. And uh, I know we haven't done mailbag questions in forever, but we will. I promise. Send your questions to the Audible Pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.